Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today I have a very special guest on with me today. It is Jim Jackson. He's a local Battle Creek historian. He's uh, written a book for Oak Hill Cemetery called Veterans of Oak Hill Cemetery. He also edited a book called For Beyond These Gates for the 2014 edition. And he's written a few other books. And so welcome today, Jim, to the podcast. We're going to talk about the history of Company K and the first Michigan sharpshooters that were a... um, totally a Native American unit. Is that correct, Jim? That's correct. Um, Pleased to be here too, Mike. Well, thank you, Jim. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become fascinated with researching history? Uh, Actually, I think it started more in uh, researching genealogy, which is really just local history. Um, Hmm. You learn about... uh, the generals and presidents in a history class in school, but genealogy brings it down to a more local level. You learn more about the laborers and the farmers and the 99% of what made America. So uh, my mother had a uh, 30-page letter of an aunt that wrote about uh, coming over from Ireland in the 1840s during the famine. Wow. And uh, settling in Canada and just the everyday uh, uh, occurrences that went on in the farm before gasoline and electricity took over was just amazing to me that, you know, these it, it seems like they were destitute, but it was just the time, you know, no one had indoor plumbing, so no one missed it. And it's wow. just all those little things you never think of when you're growing up. Wow. So you bet you did a lot of research for Oak Hill Cemetery on the veterans. When did you just first discover the history of Company K? I've done a lot of research on other uh, units like the Irish Brigade and uh, the, the Colored Troops, and uh, and I'll use contemporary terms uh, that may not be politically correct today. So don't send me cards and letters. Send them to Michael uh, for, <laughs> for that. Yeah, that's, so what, what you, that's, what, that's the banners that these people fought under and, and died for. So uh, I don't right. think I'm disrespecting them in doing that. But uh, I kept coming across these strange names. And uh, some of the soldiers had their names Americanized. Or, but for the most part, they were uh, normal uh Native American names, Indian names. This was known as the Indian Company. Company K was, like you said, completely made up of Native Americans from the three tribes of Michigan or the Great Lakes. It was the uh, Ottawa, Chippewa, and the uh, Potawatomi. So, wow. I see that some of I'm looking at the list of names that you emailed me here, and I see that some of them were not just Americanized, but they were French. They had the picking up the French, uh, you know, like there's a Marquette here and a Chandrau, and a few Those, other French names I recognize. These are from all over the state, which was a little different in recruiting a regiment at the time also, uh, but not so much unusual for sharpshooters because it was a little different than uh, trying to draft people into the uh, 
the infantry or even the uh, cavalry. But uh, yeah, many of them came from northern Michigan. Some of them lived on Mackinac Island. So you had the French influence from uh, the black robes that went to uh, educate the heathens uh, mm -hmm. back in the day. So, right. And they learned French probably before they learned English. So who conceived of the idea originally to, to form a Native American unit during the Civil War? Well, that was George Copeway. He was a Methodist minister, but he was, a, he was not from Michigan, but he was 100% Native American. And he uh, went to Washington to drum up the idea of having uh, a Native American company. Now, Indians had fought in regiments as individuals. They formed uh, for both the North and the South. But to to get an entire company of uh, Indians was was really a stretch kind of because uh, it wasn't that long ago we were at war with Indians. Uh, the only military experience Abraham Lincoln had was serving in the Black Hawk Wars. Now, right. those are those are different tribes, but at the time, uh, the white American considered an Indian an Indian. They were okay, all so the same. The Civil War began in 1861. What year was the unit um, formed? It was kind of a couple of years into the war, wasn't it? 1863, yes. Okay. Uh, about the same time as the colored troops, but unlike the colored troops, the uh, Indians were paid uh, the same as their white counterparts. Okay. So, and did they primarily train in Michigan? They did. They uh, they initially were sent to Fort Dearborn near Detroit. Okay. Uh, now to qualify, and and again, most regiments were formed at the local level. You would have a uh, a leader in the community go out and uh, give a pep talk, and he would receive a rank depending on how many people he got to sign up. And the the uh, sharpshooters were a little different. They had to qualify by shooting a what was called a string of twenty five. They had a twenty five inch string, and they would they would shoot at a target, the kind we think of today with a bullseye and right. rings around. And uh, they had to get five shots within five inches of the bullseye at two hundred yards. Wow! Wow! For football fans, that's two football fields. Holy cow! So, that is... uh, and and these were with their own rifles, not with the what we consider sharpshooter uh, equipment back then. They were issued that for the war, but a lot of these were were not. Uh, I'm guessing they must have been rifled, or they wouldn't have even come close to the target at that distance. So, were there many that didn't qualify? Uh, oh, there were. There were. I mean, this was for all of the sharpshooters. So, right. Okay. Yeah, there were many that didn't, but Did... but probably not that many. I mean, there were turkey shoots and everything else going on at the time. So, right. You knew if you could qualify or not before you stepped up. So, oh, that would make sense. Yeah, because they probably yeah. knew their own skill level. Yes. Going into it, that's interesting. So were there any other states that uh, formed a, a Native American regiment? No, this is uh, unique. Um, now, there was one soldier that that joined just before the end of the war uh, while they were at Petersburg. 
and uh, I'm, I believe he may have been part of the Delaware tribe on the East Coast. But uh, still, it was still 100%. Now, again, most of the officers were white, as in the colored troops. Uh, okay. There was one uh, Native American from Mackinac Island who was a lieutenant uh, okay. that served in Company K. Now, when I think of sharpshooters, I think of the use of more like in modern day battle where they might be a sniper or that sort of thing. How were they utilized? I mean, that probably was somewhat of the envisioned when they created the unit, but how were they actually utilized when they went into the field? Well, that was that was the intent. And uh, many of them were used as needed. If they needed you and the infantry, that's what you were doing. In fact, their first assignment after training at uh, uh, Fort Dearborn, uh, Camp Dearborn, was guarding the Confederate prisoners at uh, Camp Dearborn, Camp Douglas in Chicago, oh, where okay. the University of Chicago is now right off the uh, Michigan, uh, Lake Michigan. Wow. So, uh, and they were there for quite a while and before they got their first assignment to go uh, into the theater uh, of, of war in the Battle of the Wilderness. But, okay, uh, so they, where, they were, tell, where, where did the troops move after they left Illinois? Did they go back to Michigan or go on to? No, they went directly to uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Potomac, uh, the, uh, the Potomac uh, Theater, and uh, they fought in the Battle of the Wilderness. This was okay. like a, a brush area where their skills were not, uh, be they weren't able to use that at all because this was a dense forest bush. I mean, you couldn't see five feet ahead of you as you were walking through these trails. Okay. And um, actually, the uh, the Indians, in spite of all the marching on these dusty roads and everything, you were still expected to be spit and polish and and have inspections. But the Indians rolled around in the mud and stuck uh, twigs and things in their hats and and clothing so that uh, they just kind of blended into that wilderness environment. And wow, you can kind of have the idea of guerrilla warfare. Right. It, it was, and, and I don't know if it's the first, probably is not the first example of camouflage, but uh, their, uh, uh, their white counterparts started doing this when they were being shot at in their blue uniforms and the wow. Indians were not. So wow. <laughs> you learn quick. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I heard, I remember reading up a little bit about the Battle of Wilderness. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the one? where it went on for a couple of days, but they, there was really no decided victor in that particular battle? No, it was bad for both sides. It was yeah. pretty much hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then uh, uh, with all of that tinder uh, and, and the fire power, it, it, there, there were fires throughout the whole area. And if you mm -hmm. were wounded and couldn't crawl away, uh, you know, they could just hear the screams of the soldiers being burned to death in place wow. while they were still alive. Wow. So it was it was a bad uh, uh, situation for both sides. Definitely hell on earth. So were there any other engagements after the Battle of the Wilderness? 
after the wilderness, they got a respite by going to Spotsylvania, which was another uh, uh, major battle. And uh, after that, they uh, they went to Cold Harbor and then okay. the siege of Petersburg. And uh, after that, Weldon Railroad was their last battle. But uh, Petersburg was a siege. It was the longest siege uh, probably in both time and place. It was 26 miles long. Wow. And during the entire time, neither side, I mean, there were skirmishes here and there trying to break through. But both sides were strong enough to repel an attack and not strong enough to successfully cause an attack to the other side. Wow. So they were just kind of waiting. But during that entire time, there were a lot of deaths from sharpshooters on both sides. If you were on picket duty walking back and forth, uh, you were likely to be shot if if you were exposed uh, to anything. And this was, I always thought trench warfare was World War One, but they had trenches built along the 26 mile. So people could walk back and forth like in a ditch that was uh, dug out. So explain a little bit about what picket duty was. I've seen that reference before. Um, you were basically on guard and um, you would be relieved after a certain amount of time, but you were, you were looking for an attack or looking for any weak points that you could point out to your officers where you could take advantage of a, wow. attacking the other side yourself. So you were kind of exposed because you were out in the front? You, you had to be uh, occasionally at least uh, looking over the embankments to uh, see if there was anyone coming your way. Wow. And these sharpshooters would, would just train at like a knot hole or a crack in the, the structure. And when there was a shadow that went behind it, they would fire off and more than likely someone would be killed. Wow. Was that their final engagement at uh, the siege of was it Petersburg, you said? Well, a f strange thing happened at Petersburg. There was a uh, unit from the Pennsylvania uh, infantry that was composed mostly of coal miners. And their uh, officer went to uh, the uh, people in charge and said, you know, we, could, we can dig a horizontal tunnel 500 feet under the uh, Confederate fortification, a fortification just meaning pile of rubble, and uh, right. and put some charges underneath and blow it to smithereens and run through, widen that gap. And on this was south of Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy. Wow. So that could put an end to the war. And the... Uh, the the top officers gave their go ahead i think more to keep the men occupied than anything else because mm -hmm. it for one thing there you can't build a 500 foot tunnel there's no air in there so they wouldn't right. be able to breathe but uh, they devised a system where they put in a, a vertical shaft up to the ground about halfway back and built a fire under it so there was constant flow of air coming into the tunnel that way. I mean, this, you know, mother necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. 
Right. So it was uh, it was 50 feet below the Confederate battery and 500 uh, feet long. The shaft was three feet wide by four and a half feet high. And uh, and then they had at the end, it went to a T that extended 75 feet in both directions. And they put uh, four, they put they put two 2000 pounds things of, of black powder or gunpowder at each end, and then two more towards the center between the ends and the center. And then they lit the fuse scheduled to go at uh, 3 a.m. and nothing happened. Oh. So they asked for a couple of volunteers to go in the tunnel and find out what went wrong. And they found a splice that had come undone and lit it. Of course, the fuse is much shorter now. So they oh. hightailed <laughs> it out of there. But finally at 444, this massive shower of earth men and guns uh, just went uh, skyway. And uh, it was, uh, let me see, I can give you some. The explosion created a crater 170 feet long, 80 feet <laughs> wide, and 30 feet deep. Now, again, of course, what goes up must come down. So it was raining down chunks of oh, yeah. earth the size of horses. And they couldn't uh, move forward immediately. And by that time, the Confederates had all woken up and realized what had happened. And they rushed towards this hole. Well, this, this crater was just huge. And by this time, the Union forces were moving forward. It's called the Battle of the Crater because uh, the Confederates wow. started firing as they the Union was coming at them. And of course, when you hear bullets zinging around your head, you look for a, a ditch or foxhole or anything to dive into. And here's the biggest foxhole that I've ever seen. So they went down into it, not realizing that it was all muck and slime. They couldn't get out the other side once they, I mean, it's easy to go down. It's hard, it's impossible to go oh up. My. So the first plus you said it was 4:40 in the morning. It was so 4:40 in the morning. The sun is not up. What are they using for light? You know. Well, they had lots of light because by that time the Confederates were pouring mortars into the crater. Oh, okay. Uh, there were over uh, fifteen thousand troops by that time in the crater, Union troops. Oh my! Wow. And uh, the Union losses lost three to five thousand men that day, and hundreds were taken prisoner. Uh, while this was going on, there were three sharpshooters that stood on the edge of the crater, just firing at the Confederates, trying to draw fire to them. And all three of them were recommended uh, for a Medal of Honor. And one of them was, uh, I can find his, oh, Sidney Haight. Now, there was only one from Company K, but uh, uh, there was a Sidney Haight from... Uh, Company E, I believe, uh, finally ran out of ammunition and with his final shot, a rebel officer with the sword upraised came at him demanding his surrender. And rather than surrendering, he lunged, Sidney lunged and rammed his bayonet into the Confederate and not stopping to retrieve his weapon. He turned and bolted for the Union lines. On his way across the cell, 
shell torn expanse of open ground. He lost his cap. He felt lead balls tear through the ends of his jacket. A bullet hit the heel of his shoe, ripping the sole back to within an inch of the toe. And that sole flapped with every running step. The wow. bullets spat around Sunny uh, until he dived into the Union Trench, out of breath, hatless, with a sole mostly pulled from his shoe, but untouched by bullets safe and sound. Wow. So of the three, That's... two of them were actually awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, Antoine Scott uh, was was the third recommended for it. His citation is exactly word for word the same as Sidney Hates. And uh, he... And, and were either the, of them with Company K? No. Uh, uh, oh. Antoine Scott was the only one. The other one mentioned both of the, the sergeant, uh, Sidney Haight, and Lieutenant uh, Scott by name. Now, my first reaction was, well, that's crummy uh, because we're Yeah, if all radio. three of them were doing the, the same thing, you know. And... and and Antoine Scott being the officer, he was setting the example. Uh, but turns out it had nothing to do with his ethnicity. Uh, these Medal of Honors were issued in 1896, 30 years after the event. And okay. by that time, Antoine Scott died in the 1880s. And the Medal of Honor wasn't given posthumously unless they were killed in action. Oh, I see. Now, today, there are Civil War soldiers still receiving the Medal of Honor occasionally. I think there was one or two last year. So, uh, you know, there is there is a drive trying to get his... I mean, the paperwork's already done. It's already in the National Archives of, right. of his... what he did, and the other two assisting him received it. So there's no reason he shouldn't get it. The uh, the one problem I see, not a problem really, but we don't know where he's buried because uh, many of these Company K soldiers have headstones, military headstones, but right. many of them were just buried in Indian mounds or unmarked graves because they were from smaller communities. Uh, Antoine Scott was actually lived on Mackinac Island, and he does uh -huh. have a. Uh, um, uh, there are several Company K off, uh, soldiers with headstones at St. Anne's there, uh, right. the the cemetery. But uh, well, the I problem know that is, we Fort... don't know where to put the headstone, and that's about the only benefit of having. The, you know, right. they they also get a stipend and their monthly pension, but he's long beyond that. And anything else, right. but he does have surviving um, relatives, dependent and descendants. So uh, it's worth investigating at any rate. Well, at Fort, Fort Custer National Cemetery, they have a section of the cemetery and the, for headstones that are the bodies aren't there. They were people that um, either were buried at sea or they had uh, donated their bodies to science or they just, their bodies were unrecovered um, so as, for some disaster or whatever in the battlefield. So that was, uh, those were, there's a whole 
There's about three rows of them at uh, Fort Custer that I was uh, shown when I was out there doing that. So this possibility that not let that be a barrier to get the man his uh, recognition, even if it's just a alongside the headstones of other soldiers, you know, I agree. My best effort was he's buried, I believe up in Custer, Michigan, um, which is Northern Michigan. There is a mm-hmm. large area there that's just grass. And that is the Indian burying ground. And there, there weren't any notification. There weren't any death certificate or newspaper articles when he did die. So uh, it's it's tough to know exactly where. But I think even if it is a, uh, a token headstone for all of the Native Americans buried in that plot, it would, yeah, it by would all be means. a fitting. Uh, uh, headstone and uh, that's that's where i would like to see it at any rate were any of the other members of company k given any awards similar to that during their time no not so he not was the I'm only one that had a nomination they uh they probably would have been uh had received if they were wounded they should have received a purple heart and things but mm-hmm. there were many of those given uh, now, some of the lesser, like Silver Star, Bronze Star, um, I'm not even sure if that was available in the Civil War. I'd, I'd have to double check before I said that. But uh, right. yeah, there were there were other citations, but uh, and written up in the official records too by their superiors. Wow. Where? What? Uh, how many of them actually survived the war? Uh, many of them. Um, but before we get to that, the, if I can get back to the survivors that were captured at the oh, Battle okay. of the Crater. Yes. Absolutely. Um, they were sent to Andersonville Prison in Georgia, which you may have oh, heard boy. about. Oh, oh, yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, many of them were, were buried there. And the... Indians like to have trinkets. They wore necklaces and other things that the other soldiers never did. And when any soldier first got to Andersonville, they were attacked by, uh, you know, the the the, the group that uh, were just. They were northern soldiers, but they were they were bullying uh, the other soldiers and taking what they had. Uh-huh. And. Uh, there were there were they eventually were tried and found guilty by the union prisoners with the uh permission of the commander of andersonville and uh the six were hung and those are the only six graves that are not uh, decorated with a flag on memorial day and oh i see in, in not just the united states but elsewhere there's civil war soldiers buried prop- probably in most you know in european countries and everything else they they didn't mm-hmm. you know they did after the war they just went back home to ireland or wherever they came from uh, and wow. i've got uh, a lot of pictures of some of these but um there were two that eventually and and one of these um uh, pace and wolf was over 200 pounds and he was only there a few months but when he was transferred to another prison he w- weighed about 60 pounds. Uh, 
So oh, wow. you didn't have the best dietary things in the regular army because the, the chuck wagon didn't always make it to the battles. So uh, it, it was it was not, I think everyone lost weight. It wasn't their mom's home cooking that they were accustomed to, but prisoners suffered much more. And in Andersonville, it was uh, multiplied because of the uh, health conditions. They were drinking tainted water, uh, causing diarrhea, which and uh, they made them thirsty and they had to drink more water, which compounded wow. the problem. And uh, some of these photographs of survivors uh, just looked like concentration camp victims of just skin mm -hmm. and bone. And you really never really survive of that, even after you put some weight on uh, or after the war. But two of these did walk out of Anderson after the war, the war was ended. Uh -huh. And getting them home was a logistic nightmare because uh, we'd, it was April and the roads were just muck, impassable, overused by heavy equipment and artillery uh, wagons and everything else. The uh, railroads were had been destroyed as best both sides could do for four years. So the only right. way to get them back really was they, these two soldiers, along with many others from Andersonville, were sent to Vicksburg to go up uh, north on a paddle wheel boat. And they happened to be on one called the Sultana. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Maybe some of your listeners never have. But uh, it was uh, it was had a uh, repair in the boiler back in uh, down in New Orleans before it it went north and it was it was built for 376 passengers well at New Orleans 76 civilian passengers going north boarded along with 60 horses 100 hogs and and a nine foot alligator I'm guessing what were they going to do with that? I'm guessing they were sending it north to a zoo or something. But oh, uh, probably, yeah. At uh, at uh, at Vicksburg, uh, they loaded, and again, this was 376 passengers. 76 were already on, but uh, they could. They were getting five dollars per uh, soldier to ship them north. The, the steam line right. was so why not put 500 soldiers on there or a wow. thousand uh, when it finally left the port it had 2450 passengers on board and oh by all accounts the the boards actually were creaking from the weight of all those people and right around uh, nashville a boiler exploded and there was a big uh, investigation in this they thought maybe it was a mine or something uh, even after the war was ended they thought it may have been uh, confederates blowing up the ship but turned out to be actually a, a boiler but that caught the ship on fire and these soldiers weren't many of them weren't able to make it to do anything i mean they were just so weak and none of, very few of them knew how to swim, which is surprising. But throughout all of these records, you find that people, you know, they went down and, and 
try to wash off the grime from the war in the middle of the war and uh, three or four would drown because very few knew how to swim, which right. is surprising. You figure they all had water holes, but then I thought, well, okay, if you have a water hole you grew up with, you know where the deep spots are and you can avoid that. Right. But um, so these, these soldiers were begging their comrades to throw them overboard rather than burn alive on the ship, knowing wow. that they couldn't, they would drown. I mean, it's, it's not a good choice to be in. And uh, oh, wow. both soldiers from Company K uh, made it back home. Uh, they were survivors. And there was a, we, there are a lot of reunions uh, for different regiments. And there were reunions, usually in Jackson, Michigan, because that's where their, uh, their colonel was, uh, um, Charles DeLand lived in Jackson. Uh -huh. It was at his farm. But many of these, uh, there was also uh, reunions for survivors of the Sultana also. The Sultana wow. was, was the greatest maritime disaster of all time. And amazingly, it still is. There were more passengers on that paddle boat than there were on the Titanic. And there were more deaths from the Sultana than people died from the Titanic uh, maiden voyage. Wow. So, uh, I mean, it's not a, and I've seen other things where like the Indianapolis was the greatest maritime disaster for the Navy. I mean, there's, right. there's usually a stipulation in there. This Sultana was, and, and if you've never heard of it, that's, that's not unusual. People at the time never heard of it. I mean, we were a war weary nation. And the more important reason people didn't hear about it, if you had a four-page newspaper, three and a half pages were dedicated to the assassination of the president in Washington, right. D.C. Because this, it probably happened right around that time, this, right? This happened yeah. like a week after the war was ended. So uh, oh, same wow. time, uh, people didn't hear about it unless they had family on it. Wow. There is a, uh, a monument to the the first sharpshooters as a whole, not just Company K, up on the uh, corner of the, uh, the the state capitol building in Lansing. And uh, oh. if you follow the bead of the sharpshooter, it's pointed at the steps where the governor is inaugurated every four years. I don't know if that's just coincidence <laughs> or what, but uh, it's just struck me as odd, but that was dedicated in 1915. And many of the soldiers, I mean, they were all invited to attend and many did attend. Mm -hmm. You asked earlier wow. about the GAR there up in Mount Pleasant, there was a GAR uh, post that is the Wabino post, which was named after one of Company K's soldiers. He, uh, oh, okay. he actually got sick at uh, at uh, Camp Douglas in Chicago, and they let him go home on sick leave, and he got to Mount Pleasant about three days before he died. And uh, usually GAR posts were, were named after the first uh, person to die in the war, and uh, 
They named from that area uh, from or, that area, yeah. and they named that right. GAR post uh, uh, Wabino or Indian. So I don't know if that's the only uh, uh, Native American or, or GAR post named after a Native American, mm -hmm. but it's the only one I've come across. Right. Yeah, the last uh, GAR member died in 1956. I learned that the other night when I visited the Eaton Rapids yeah. uh, GIR Museum. And uh, that's a fascinating history. I think you rec you recommended me that I go to that that uh, museum. It was quite something. Yeah, I would have <laughs> I wanted to, but I had a, another board meeting to attend. So, right. so what became of the unit? Um, after the war, I mean, the, the soldiers themselves. After the war, they you know, went back and they uh, maintained their what they were doing before the war. Um, many of them, most of them, I think, lived on reservations. So you'll see them at Mount Pleasant and Pentwater and Athens. Uh, the nearest one that is buried from Company K in the Battle Creek area is at the Athens uh, uh, Indian Cemetery. There's, okay. If you go to uh, Athens uh, Reservation area, you'll see they, they have the office buildings there, and they just built a brand, beautiful, uh, well, probably about 10 years ago now, but right. everything goes so fast, but they just built this uh, outdoor um, area so they, you know, for their powwows and everything. And there's uh, hundreds if not thousands of people that go to that every year it's a several day event and it's right. uh it's very impressive but down the road is a church and behind the church or beside the church is a, a, a cemetery for the people on the reservation there and there's several civil war stones there there is one from company k uh, Michigan and and you'll it's not normally a sharpshooter it's usually SS which if you're a World War II junkie that may be a little discouraging but uh, it's it stands for right. sharpshooter sharpshooter right okay and did any of them um, did they primarily stay on the reservation or did any of them go into uh, most of them politics did, but I know there was uh, there was one I thought was on a reservation but he was also uh, the county registrar uh, for okay. one of the northern counties. I don't know if that would prohibit him from running. Uh, the fact that they served at all, they were not citizens. They were not eligible for the draft, which uh, caused a lot of uh, upset uh, itself in the Civil War when they instituted a draft. Uh, one of the things you could do back in the Civil War, if you were drafted, that you can't do now is you could pay someone to take your place. So right. many of these uh, Indians would do that because you you couldn't pay anyone who was eligible for the draft because they might be drafted themselves eventually. Right. Uh, but uh, um, colored troops and the Native Americans if you weren't eligible for the draft, you were, uh, you know, you were you were right at the top of the list to be uh, to receive a, a bounty to uh, take the place of someone else who could afford several hundred dollars to pay you. Yeah, I think the substitution thing was 
was practiced also in the War of 1812 because I came across uh, the Hicks family. The, the the patriarch of the Hicks family up there at Hicks Cemetery was had taken the place of his brother okay. in the War of 1812. It was in the War of 1812 uh, military records for him that I, I saw that. So it must have been something that was permitted sometimes, I guess. But it was usually before the Civil War, I think it was more like a family member, like, the mother didn't want to take the have the senior son go off to war because he was so the younger son would would step in his place or vice versa. It's it's uh, it's a tough call because uh, I, I mentioned there was one who was a uh, lieutenant. It was Garrett uh, Gravier, and his he served. Actually, his father took him to Detroit to enlist at Camp uh, Dearborn, and his father stayed and served as first sergeant. His father was 48. He claimed he was 45 because that was the cutoff. And right. uh, his father was killed at Spotsylvania. His uh, his son, Garrett, when he was told of that, he, he went back out into no man's land in the middle of the night and retrieved his father's body, buried him in a shallow grave to be moved home eventually. But wow. then Garrett was shot the next day in the arm and sent to Washington, D.C., where his arm was amputated and he died from infection after uh, several weeks. So, wow. I mean, there's there's a poignant letter to his mother informing him, uh, informing her that he was shot, his arm was removed, but he's in good spirits and the doctors think he'll be home soon and telling her for the first time that her husband had died uh, on the battlefield. Wow. So uh, it's, it's, yeah, and and her being, you know, losing her husband and her son, uh, you I, I didn't realize this, you only get one pension. So wow. she had to choose, does she get a, a widow's pension or a mother's pension? She chose the mother's pension because her son being a, officer would would be worth more than her husband who is a sergeant so wow that's that's really <laughs> in retrospect i guess we could be cynical of that sort of thing but i guess that was the way the the laws or rules were set up back then you know it was i just assumed you know because you hear about these mothers that lose four sons in the war mm -hmm. uh, right. i just assumed that they would get four stipends uh, because one of the one of the reasons to have children is to take care of you in your old age there were no old age homes there were no you know you if right. if you didn't have and you can't work i mean you can work past the age of 65 but when you get in your 80s and 90s it's tough to do mm -hmm. to support yourself on a farm if you're all by yourself so uh, it's uh, Part of the reason for having kids is to take care of you. And if you lose mm -hmm. your children late in life, you're, uh, you're up the creek. So uh, that's that was the yeah, reason I think, for the pensions. Right. In the post-Civil War era, uh, a lot of the pension laws were brought about because of the efforts of the Grand Army of the Republic. <laughs> yes. Because they, they became a, a political lobbying organization that made that possible, even for the colored soldiers. <laughs> Yes, um, I, that would have been left out otherwise, you know, by I I think there were like eight Republican presidents that 
if you didn't have the GAR backing, you weren't elected. Yeah. Right. I think it, um, on their website, I think they said it was five or six of them. There was probably eight candidates. Okay. I would think, but yeah, there was. Yeah, if you didn't, you weren't going to get a Republican nomination if you weren't a. Yeah, um, they were. They were up until the nineteen teens anyway, and. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why they decided to limit their membership to Civil War only. That's why these other ones like American Legion went into effect because they they wanted a club too because um, mm-hmm. coming home from the war, other people just don't understand what what you went through, what you're still going through. And uh, right. it's, it's uh, important to know you're not alone. Yeah, it's um, it's quite an interesting look at that point in history. They were still, I guess, resentment against the the rebel soldiers and the Confederate soldiers. Uh, you know, well, obviously they, they were, fought them in the battlefield. So eventually, I think they came to terms. There's many uh, Union reunions that welcomed Confederate counterparts right. to their their reunions. Um, some of them married or were already married to northern women and uh, or vice versa the right. northern was down in south and it uh they 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 never forgot the war but they uh i think they excused the individuals that lived in their own community and they got to know and depend on a small community you depend on everyone because right and you, if if you don't help them, you're going to get in trouble someday, and you're going to need their help. Well, it's been uh, wonderful talking to you today, Jim. Um, anything else you'd like to add about the Company K First Michigan Sharpshooters that we didn't cover already? No, I think it's a, a, a fascinating uh, fact that it's unique that way, and uh, it's it's amazing to me all of the different battles and skirmishes they went in. They weren't in the earlier part of the war where you hear about right. Antietam and Gettysburg, but they were in a lot of major battles that uh, some of them were really unique. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the hard part too is each one of these, especially with their native names, are spelled half a dozen different ways, sometimes on the same sheet of paper. So it, it wow. makes researching much more difficult. There are- yeah, I, I, uh, I looked at this list that you gave me, and I could see that that would be uh, quite a challenge because some of them are very close in spelling. Um, wow. I've got uh, seven books at home about the, the, the sharpshooters in some way or another. Uh, one is just Indian stories that talk about one of them as a child that broke his leg while they were uh, in mm-hmm. a tree uh, trying to tap it for syrup and uh, or, or yeah, I guess it was syrup and mother and daughter would would or sister would be carrying him to school every day uh, for like three months while his leg healed because education wow. was so important to them. And uh, other other books that uh, just do a lot of the research too. So it's it's well, out there. You plan to write a book yourself on the subject once you're done with your research? Probably not. I give talks <laughs> on it, but uh, it's 
it's there have been several good books about it so i don't know about you okay. know one of the books i have is to die in chicago it's it's actually confederate's view of being a prisoner at uh, camp douglas in chicago wow. so it's i mean they're um, they were treated much better than the yankees in southern prisons but i guess if you right. take uh capture someone in Georgia and they come up barefoot to Chicago on Lake Michigan in the wintertime. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not where you would want to be. So it's certainly not me at all. It's, it's certainly a brutal winter to and, and experience. Again, and I, both sides, prisoners and guards were dying from every day from disease. There are more deaths from disease than battles. So it's uh you're risking your life just by time. And I think up. the from what I, I heard the other night at the lecture that the winter of eighteen sixty three there was a couple of months there that it was pretty brutal mm. winter wise, at least in Detroit. And I would imagine the same was in Chicago. Um so that that added a lot to the attrition rate on soldiers <laughs> in those camps. Yeah. Um Well, thanks for joining me today, Jim. It's been a fascinating tour through history with looking at this unique chapter of Company K. Well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy uh, uh, talking about them. Well, thank you. And we'll definitely have you back on some other subject matters that we've uh, certainly want to talk to you in the future about some of the other books that you've written. That's going to do it for today's journey through history. If you like today's podcast, certainly uh, remember to subscribe and share the podcast with others. And I will see you next time as we go back into time and find some more interesting stories to tell about Southwest Michigan history. Thanks for listening.